and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Ros Taylor. And we hereby establish an international organization to be known as the United Nations. Long live the United Nations. Long live the United Nations. That was from The Fanfare for All People, a film released to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the UN in 2015. But times have changed since then. Russia invaded Ukraine. The relationship between China and the West is strained. There are more and more coups in Africa. It survived the Cold War, but how much can the UN really do now? With me to answer that question is Richard Gowan, the UN Director at Crisis Group, who's been following the UN for many years. Welcome to the bunker, Richard. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Richard, the UN is fundamentally an organisation designed to keep the peace between nations, and many people would like it to focus more on things like AI and the climate emergency, but preventing war is still fundamental. It has a security council, and on that council are 15 members, five of them with veto power, China, the UK, US, France and Russia. Russia can't be kicked off the security council. What has this meant for Ukraine? Fundamentally, it has meant that the Security Council has failed the people of Ukraine, because although the US and its allies have tabled a series of council resolutions demanding that Russia end its aggression, Moscow has quite predictably blocked all of those. It's worth saying that other parts of the UN have actually been quite active in defence of Ukraine. Uh, The General Assembly, where every single country in the world has a vote, has passed a series of resolutions condemning Moscow and demanding an end to the war by very big margins. And actually on the ground in Ukraine, there are UN humanitarian workers uh, making a huge effort to help suffering. So I don't think it's quite true to say that the UN as a whole has failed the Ukrainians, but the Security Council definitely has. And the General Assembly helped to broker the Black Sea grain deal to enable Ukraine to continue to export wheat. But that has now broken down, hasn't it? The real architect of the Black Sea grain deal at the UN was Antonio Guterres, uh, the Secretary General. And he worked very closely with uh, President Erdogan of Turkey in 2022, Basically, what happened was that the Ukrainian half of the deal was quite successful. Uh, Ukraine was actually able to ship a very large amount of uh, grain onto world markets. But the Russians felt that they never got much back for it. There wasn't a sort of an increase in their exports of food and fertilizer. And so after a lot of threats um, in the first half of this year, they eventually pulled out in July. And that is a blow the UN. And it is a blow personally for Guterres, who tried incredibly hard to keep Moscow on board. With the collapse of the deal, it means that it's not clear that Guterres and the UN have much space to do very much more in the way of mediation and and peacemaking between the Russians and Ukrainians. Let's turn to another potential flashpoint, Taiwan. China may invade Taiwan in the future. Are we going to run into the same problem of a Security Council member invading another country? Well, Taiwan is the potential crisis that everyone knows could blow up the Security Council, but 
no one ever talks about in New York. And the reason for that is that from the UN's perspective, Taiwan is part of China. Um, China holds the UN seat and Taiwan is not a member of the organization. And Beijing responds very angrily if any other country suggests that the UN should discuss the Taiwanese situation. So whereas the Security Council does actually have a role in some other flashpoints in Asia, uh, notably with sanctions on North Korea, it is silent on Taiwan. I, I think that if there was a war over Taiwan, it would do even greater damage to the Security Council and to the UN than what we've seen as a result of Russia's ag aggression against Ukraine. I mean, it, it would really torpedo uh, the institution. And has the Security Council been able to do anything about the war in Sudan? The Security Council has struggled with a number of crises in Africa this year, and Sudan is uh, a particularly sad example of that. The UN has been engaged in Sudan for many years. You will, re will remember that there was a big blue helmet peace operation in Darfur in western Sudan uh, until a few years ago. Uh, until the spring, the UN had a presence in Khartoum that was trying to facilitate uh, the Sudanese transition to civilian rule um, after the 2019 fall of the dictator Omar al-Bashir. But when fighting broke out earlier this year, the UN had to evacuate its, its staff. The Sudanese government refused to talk to the UN envoy. And in the Security Council, China and Russia essentially refused to support any serious action against the Sudanese authorities. This has been one more case where the council has been pretty much impotent in 2024. So Joe Biden has said he wanted to reform the Security Council. And from what you've said, you know, one, one can understand why that it feels like there's a need for action. What does he want to do? And do you think it could work? Well, this is something which President Biden raised last year. And his basic argument was that the council's clear failings over Ukraine demonstrated that you do need to overhaul the institution. He also said that it is time to expand the permanent membership of the council to bring in countries such as India and Brazil that are now significant players on the world stage. And, you know, this, I think, was a line that resonated with a lot of countries. I do think that many diplomats at the UN find it a bit absurd that the UK still has a permanent seat and India does not. So there is a general agreement that we do need to update this very problematic institution. The problem is no one can really agree exactly what formula for updating it is acceptable. You know, the US would like to see India and Brazil in as permanent members, but it would also like to see its allies, Germany and Japan, have permanent seats. Now, the Russians say that they would be happy to have India and Brazil on board, but they don't want more pro-US countries having privileged positions in the Security Council. The Chinese are really allergic, for obvious historical reasons, to the concept of Japan having a special status in the Security Council. And there are a huge number of other geopolitical rifts and divides that get in the way of achieving council reform. To reform the council, you need support from two-thirds of the UN's members, including all the current permanent members of the council. 
So you can see that's an incredibly high bar to jump under any circumstances. And it's even harder when you have a deeply divided great power political situation as we do today. I can certainly see the case for removing the UK from the Security Council. There is no possibility, I, I take it, that the UK would willingly step aside in order to make space in the, in the veto group for a country that is bigger and more powerful. No, absolutely not. I mean, the UK. No, I think so. <laughs> the, the UK is in favour of reform, and I think that both the the British and the French understand that in the long term, it's in their interest to have a reformed and expanded council, because otherwise their influence is of increasingly little value. So officials in London and officials in Paris will tell you that they're keen to see reform, but they're not going to give up their own rights and privileges at the UN anytime soon. I mean, actually, this has more been a question recently for France than for Britain, because there are idealists in Brussels and other corners of the European Union who say France should step aside and create a EU seat in the Security Council, or maybe France and Germany should share one seat. These ideas drive French diplomats nuts. Um, <laughs> France is very committed to the idea that it is a permanent member of the Security Council in its own right, and they don't want to allow German officials or other pesky EU members to chip away at their authority. France is also in trouble in Africa, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's just withdrawn its, its uh, forces from Niger, and a number of ex- French colonies that the France still that France still has a presence in have had coups. Has the situation of France being on the Security Council played into that too? Well, for some time, France has relied on UN peacekeepers to help stabilize some of its former colonies in Africa. And we have big blue helmet missions in the Central African Republic and also Mali. However, as we've seen this growing pushback against French influence amongst many of its former colonies. Uh, Mali actually demanded in June of this year that the UN should pull out from its territory. I think this was an unpleasant shock to the French. And although a lot of Security Council members are concerned that withdrawing peacekeepers from Mali could simply create a security vacuum and initiate more violence, Security Council members felt that they they had no choice but to withdraw the mission rather than risk a very nasty confrontation with the Malian government. Tell us a bit about what's going on in Haiti, because I think a lot of our listeners may not know. Haiti doesn't get much attention in Europe, but it is getting a huge amount of attention in the US. Um, because obviously it's there in the Caribbean and a potential source of refugees coming to US shores. Um, basically, Haiti has long struggled with crime, uh, armed gangs control much of the capital, Port-au-Prince. And over the last couple of years, we've really seen a fundamental breakdown of law and order in the country. And there's an urgent need for an international intervention to at least create some stability in, in Haiti and make some space uh, to sort of start rebuilding the local police and law enforcement agencies. 
The problem is that the UN has deployed to Haiti quite a few times in the past. Uh, I remember going down to Port-au-Prince in 2006, but these successive UN missions have not brought stability. And the UN is also struggling with very credible accusations that one of its peacekeeping units um, coming from Asia actually introduced cholera into Haiti some years ago. So although there's a need for an, in an intervention in Haiti, uh, it cannot be a UN blue helmet peacekeeping force of the classic type, uh, because it would simply be unacceptable to the population. What's really fascinating is that a country we hadn't expected, uh, Kenya, has come forward and said that uh, it is willing to lead a intervention force primarily made up of police into Haiti. And you know, Kenya will need a lot of funding. The US has offered it money for this. It will need a lot of logistical support, but it does look like this mission will go ahead. And so you know, we're seeing something very rare, which is an African nation leading a peace operation in another part of the world. And this is a, a fascinating experiment. Where else is the UN making a positive difference? It's very easy to list all the places where the UN is struggling, and we've just done that. Um, but I think it is worth saying that the UN you know, is still sometimes an important agency, and often the only agency that can help the suffering where, where others cannot go or do not want to go. And right now, the example that I would highlight is Afghanistan. Now, the UN has long had a presence in Afghanistan. It was in Afghanistan throughout the period when NATO forces were there. But when the US and UK and other allies pulled out in 2021, pretty much all that was left behind uh, was a UN political office and UN humanitarian agency. While everyone else has turned away from Afghanistan, everyone else is licking their wounds from the fall of Kabul, it's been left to the UN to act as the primary point of contact with the Taliban. Now, this has actually been essential because it really is only through the work of UN agencies that Afghanistan is being saved from mass starvation right now. Uh, the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan is already appalling, but if you didn't have organizations like the World Food Programme helping civilians, uh, you would have a mass fatality event. And so... You know, the UN has struggled to deal with the Taliban. The Taliban's gender policies are atrocious and opposed to everything that UN officials believe in. But the UN is staying because it is keeping people alive. And if we didn't have the UN in Afghanistan, we would have a humanitarian disaster. We would have greater refugee flows. Um, you know, it would be chaotic. Is this one of the reasons why Antonio Guterres published an agenda for peace earlier this year, where he called on the UN to dismantle the patriarchy. Was he making the point that, you know, despite the fact that the UN had a moral obligation to help Afghanistan, they were still committed to gender equality? The new agenda for peace is a sort of a manifesto that Guterres has put out about how to try and get the UN as a whole back on track. It contains a lot of sensible ideas about classic UN problems like uh, reinforcing peace operations. It contains some far-sighted ideas about issues like the regulation of artificial intelligence and the militarization of artificial intelligence. But the phrase that jumped out as a lot of diplomats was this call, a very un-UN call, to dismantle the patriarchy. 
And I think that what this call reflects is the fact that the UN has been talking about the importance of addressing the security of women and the political participation of women in conflicts for many years. But still, if you look at many conflict settings around the world, uh, women are marginalized. They are not brought into peace processes. There is a very high risk of conflict-related sexual violence. And the UN has launched all sorts of programs and all sorts of initiatives to try and address these problems, but they remain. And I think that the feeling was that, you know, you needed Guterres to up the ante rhetorically. And does he have a plan to dismantle the patriarchy? That's what I was going to ask you. Uh, that is less clear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think that the UN still has the same range of programs, same, same range of tools that it, it always had. Uh, but it's just trying to put some more political energy into this cause. And it's worth saying that Guterres is also, in using this language, he's pushing back against a couple of big powers and big players at the UN, notably China and Russia, but also some uh, Muslim-majority countries who have been attempting to roll back the whole women, peace and security agenda for some time. And Guterres is drawing a line and sort of saying, no, we, we do have to defend the rights of women and we have to promote women as political actors in peacemaking situations. We had the General Assembly a couple of weeks ago where UN members met. What came out of that? The General Assembly is a great big circus. <laughs> there were over 130 presidents and prime ministers. In New York, uh, for one week in September, the east side of New York is closed off completely. There are constant protests um, all around the perimeter of, of the UN by different groups. It all feels very important when you're there in the moment. How much impact it has in the real world is always rather harder to gauge. This year, Joe Biden came, I think, with one main agenda item, which was to try to appeal to countries from what we now call the global south, you know, Asia, Africa, Latin America, really emphasizing that he understands a lot of the economic problems that debt burdened countries in, in Africa and Asia are currently facing. And so the focus was really more on global economics and the needs of the developing world than on some of the conflict topics that we have been highlighting in our chat. There have been complaints around the UN, we, and we've been hearing these for 18 months, that a lot of Global South countries feel that the US is focused entirely on Ukraine. It is putting economic resources in huge quantities into Ukraine, and it's not putting similar resources into helping poor states deal with their economic problems. And so Biden came with various pledges to try and reverse that narrative. The second reason to focus on these topics is that, you know, the U.S. is constantly watching China and the U.S. sees that China continues to gain more influence. And I think that the U.S. feels that it's important to reinforce its own ties with those countries rather than let Beijing position itself as the sole, sole leader of the global south. How would you rate Antonio Guterres as a secretary general so far? Antonio Guterres is an incredibly smart man, and he has a very, very acute grasp of changing dynamics of the world order that we see now. He's also 
I think, been quite far-sighted in talking about the need for the UN to tackle emerging challenges such as artificial intelligence. Uh, what Guterres is not is a lucky man. About one month after he secured the job of Secretary General, Donald Trump uh, secured the job of US President. And that meant that for most of his first term in office, Guterres was basically focused on trying to avoid a breakdown in relations between Washington and the UN. But just when Guterres thought that he was free of Trump, uh, his bad luck struck again and Russia launched its all-out assault on Ukraine. And so he's taking a lot of flack. He's dealing with uh, an incredibly difficult war. And I think that you know, that is keeping him really from achieving some of the bigger goals that he would like to be focused on, such as developing international regulations around AI. And of course, there is the threat, if Trump becomes president again, that he will carry out his threat to leave the UN. <laughs> I genuinely don't know if Guterres would stay in office if Trump comes back. I, I don't believe that the US would pull out of the UN in a second Trump administration. I believe that Trump would pull out of a lot of UN agreements, like the Paris Climate Change Agreement, uh, which he has already rejected once. But at the end of the day, I think even Trump recognizes that if the US walks out of the Security Council at the apex of the UN system, then that will simply create space for Russia and China to use the UN to advance their own interests. Um, it would mean that Israel uh, didn't have a, a sure defender in the Security Council. It would ultimately be very negative for, for US interests. So if we get Trump 2.0, um, I think we can expect a very rocky ride at the UN, but the US will stay inside the tent. Richard, thanks so much for all those insights. Thank you very much indeed. And you can support The Bunker by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast and contributing as little as £3 a month. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. See you next time. Good news! Your favourite history nerds are back! Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker is presented by Roz Taylor and produced by Chris Jones. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieburn, music by Kenny Dickens, and assistant production by Adam Ryan. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.